0: My name is Micah. I've, uh, my wife and I have been coming here for since about 2003. Um, we raised four kids at Cross Points. Uh, we're lucky still to have uh, two left. So I love to hear all the, the kids and everything like that. It's, it's good to hear it's the sounds of life. Our scripture reading today is from 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 34. This is the CSB version. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God, because we have testified wrongly about God, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for since Death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, afterward, at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father. When he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now, when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people being baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I face death. Every day, as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks be to God. Thanks, Micah. If the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not true, then we should all go home. I should definitely find another job. Because I've been lying to you for 16 years. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, it means the gospel message and the faith that we proclaim is a 2,000-year-old sham. A sham. Utter sham. But... If Jesus did rise from the dead, it changes everything. Tim Keller describes the resurrection as the hinge upon which the story of the world pivots. And that's exactly what Paul is writing of here in this section. We've been in a multi-month journey through 1 Corinthians, and today we move into chapter 15. We'll look at the first 11 verses here in a few weeks, but we're going to spend ultimately four Sundays looking at chapter 15. And as Paul Finishes toward the end of this letter, he's culminating in the subject of the resurrection. Here in today's passage, we'll break it down this way verses 12 through 19 is a listing of a bunch of hypotheticals. If this is true, then this is true, over and over. And if the resurrection is not true, then all these things result. Then in verses 20 through 28, Paul moves from talking about hypotheticals into talking about true, certain, Realities that if the resurrection is true, that because it is, these certainties result. And then finally, in verses 29 through 34, Paul talks about how the resurrection of Jesus is shaping his way of life and how it should be shaping the way of life for the Corinthians and how it should be shaping our way of life as followers to this day. Verse 12 again Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So in verse 12, we learn that some in the Corinthian church are saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And then when you die in this life, that's it. It's over. There is no eternal life. And so as a result, they're also implying that Jesus did not rise from the dead either. That Jesus did die upon a cross, was buried in a tomb, and then the story ended is what they are wrongly thinking. N.T. Wright wrote this, Christianity was born into a world where its central claim, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that central claim was assumed to be false. Many believed the dead were non-existent. Outside of Judaism, nobody believed in resurrection. In the Roman world, everybody knew people didn't die and then come back to bodily life. I mean, the Romans were an enlightened people. They knew better, and the resurrection goes against what they saw as natural laws. See, maybe we, we assume that people in ancient days were just gullible. Like, they didn't know much. I mean, they didn't have the Internet. They didn't know much. <laughs> like, because we are infinitely wise now that we have the Internet. So the logic goes, well, they're just gullible, but we are so enlightened in our day. They're gullible to believe the resurrection. But in reality, whether ancient days, modern days unbelieving people have difficulty with the resurrection of Jesus. It seems far-fetched. People aren't supposed to rise from the dead because it goes against what seems natural or ordinary. Of course it does! Of course it does! Because we're dealing with a God who is supernatural and extraordinary. A God who is not limited by time or space, who is not confined by natural laws or boxed into what finite, limited men and women think He can or cannot do. He's God and we're not. The historical evidence abounds for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Anthony Flew, a longtime atheist who toward the end of his life did believe in a God, but did not... Ever confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior, so he moved from atheist to deist, but he never became a Christ follower because he never saw Jesus as the God man. Flew said this the evidence for the resurrection is better than for claimed miracles in any other religion. It's outstandingly different in quality and quantity from the evidence offered for the occurrence of most other supposedly miraculous events. So even though the evidence of the resurrection was strong, he never personally embraced it. Flew continued to put his hope in himself and not in the risen one. And some of you are there. You believe there's a divine being. You may even believe that Jesus rose from the dead. But you're still standing at this picture of this line of faith and going, I'm not crossing that. I'm not crossing that. I'm still going to put my hope in myself in the end. I'll bet on me. Friends, don't make such an eternally tragic, prideful mistake. Put your hope in Jesus today. Only He is forever faithful. Only He withstood all the commands of God and did them perfectly and died in our place, died in your place, and then rose again on the third day, proving that He is forever faithful. In this section, Paul is saying, if Christians fail to believe in the resurrection, everything falls apart. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Another word for vain there is empty or meaningless. If you're a Christ follower, you are proclaiming Jesus with your words and way of life. This is not just Uh, those who preach from a platform. Paul is saying that if Jesus did not rise on the third day, then our words, your words, let alone our entire faith is empty. It's vain. Because if we're saying that our faith is in a man who is still dead, what good is that faith? Such faith is empty. Verse 15, Paul says that if Jesus did not beat death, then we are found to be false witnesses about God. So not only were the apostles liars, but so am I and so are you. Our reputation, our integrity should be called into question. Verse 18, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. Meaning if Jesus is still in a tomb, then there is no eternal life for Christ followers. If the story ended in a tomb for Jesus, why would we think that our believing friends and family who we miss, why would we believe that their story would end differently than his. Verse 19, if we had put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. If our, if our hope was in Jesus, notice he, notice he says, for this life only, that we should be looked down upon, pitied, comforted, patted on the head. Oh, sorry, you misplaced your faith, little one. He's still dead. So the hope that you supposedly have is no hope at all. Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. You are still in your sins. That's a sobering, devastating thing if Jesus did not rise. A Christ follower is one who admits they are a sinner, meaning they are the ones who are the first to admit we've missed the mark in how our Creator God has called us to live, meaning we've done the things we shouldn't have done and we've not done the things that we should have done. So then knowing they are sinners, a Christian says, I believe Jesus died for my sins, that he paid the price for my past, present, and future sin upon that cross, paid the penalty of that sin in full. The penalty was death, and Jesus died in my place. He bore the wages of the sin and the wrath of God toward that sin so that through believing in him, putting my hope and trust in him, I might be saved from eternal death and be brought into and raised to new life. If Jesus did not walk out of the tomb on Sunday morning, we are still dead in our sins. So the penalty of our sins is still held against us. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is is death. So if we're still in our sins... Then, then eternal death is still awaiting us. It means the power of sin still has a hold on our lives. That we're still chained up to it. That we're still enslaved. If Jesus is still dead, then we are still dead in sin. And we're not right with God, and there's no hope of getting right with Him. But, verse 20, if you've got a Bible on your lap, you should underline it. Ephesians 2 has the exact same pivot, this transition, this massive hinge in the storyline. All the ifs of the previous section disappear because it's not a matter of if Jesus rose. Paul is declaring that is what is most certain and central to our faith and life as he moves forward. He moves from hypotheticals to true resurrection realities that change everything. Are they changing you, loved ones? Are they changing you? Are they affecting how you actually live Monday through Saturday and not just Sunday mornings? Are they affecting how you approach the future and who you actually serve and worship? Who you devote your life to? Are they, is the re- resurrection reality changing these things in our hearts and in our attitudes and our lives? Verses 20-22, through but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as an Adam all dies, so also in Christ all will be made alive. The word firstfruits shows, shows up in verse 20 as well as verse 23. It's an agricultural term. It means the first showing of the harvest and points then to the subsequent harvest to come. First fruits imply later fruits. If the first batch is beautiful and glorious, then all the subsequent batches will be beautiful and glorious. The harvest follows what leads. In this this way, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the first fruits. It points forward to the resurrection of all believers and followers of Jesus. For if our life's hope and trust is in Him, and he rose from the dead in the same way we will follow. So when we fall asleep, meaning pass away, we will be raised to eternal life. As one author wrote, the resurrection of Christ is a pledge and proof of the resurrection of his people. Paul's contrasting here just like he does in Romans 5. What being united to Adam was like being what, versus being what united to Christ is like. In Adam, we all die. In Adam, we are born with a sin nature that is prone to wandering and rebellion. In Adam, we miss the mark and we fall short of the glory of God. And all people, you and I, are born into Adam. That sin nature is passed down generation after generation since Genesis 3. Adam's life affected all who are joined to him. But even more so, Paul wants us to see. All those joined to Christ are affected and transformed by Him. If death came through Adam, life comes through Christ. We are all born into sin, so this is why Jesus says in John 3 that we must be born again, not physically, but spiritually. We must experience a rebirth that comes by the Spirit and not by sin. A rebirth that is possible because Jesus was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died on a cross for our sin, rose again on Easter morning. In Christ, all will be made alive. Not just in this life, not just in the life to come, but in this life. Because Christians have been born again, not by our will, but by His will, by the goodness and grace of the Father, by His power, by His grace. So now, brothers and sisters, it's not our original, old Adam identity that defines us, but rather it's our new identity in Christ that defines us internally and then determines our life outwardly. An identity that can never be taken from us because we didn't go out and earn it, but it was given to us by grace. And so, as a result, the identity is secure. It's secure. Verses 23-28, through 28, Paul continues to lay out certain and true realities because Jesus rose from the dead. He's pointing our eyes forward, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, afterward at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, when he abolishes all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet, the last enemy to abolish. To be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Now when it says everything is put under him, it is obvious that he who puts everything under him is the exception. When everything is subject to Christ, then the Son himself will also be subject to the one who subjected everything to him so that God may be all in all. Paul's laying out a divine order that has taken place, that will take place in the future, in order that... That includes or begins with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that leads to the resurrection of all believers, that leads to the end when Christ will return. The final judgment and a new heavens and a new earth are established. The first fruits will return in glory, and the harvest of saved people from every tribe, tongue, and nation throughout all history will be gathered in worship of the one who did all the work. His name is Jesus Christ. Do you see the overwhelming in this passage, this section, do you see this overwhelming and vivid picture that Paul's painting of the final and complete supremacy of Jesus Christ? Him reigning in victory. Him handing over the keys to the new kingdom, to the Father, where all things will be placed under the feet of our God, including death. Where sin and death and the devil are forever robbed of their power and forever vanquished where suffering and unjust authority and power that is evil, they are like a footstool, a footstool to our eternal, majestic God whose sovereign plans of redemption that have unfolded throughout all of time have now come to completion, where the serpent's head will be forever crushed, never to be heard from again and whose power or influence will never be felt again for a believer notice how many times the word under shows up because nothing and no one is greater than our god and that's not just true in the future it's true now even while we live in a fallen world even while the devil's lurking around like a lion seeking for for someone to devour even as our sinful flesh lingers our God is greater. Our God is greater in the future. Our God is greater now. Evil's days are numbered, loved ones. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead tells us that and the subsequent future divine order will be revealed according to His will. He will return and all God's people will rise with Him and all the enemies of God, including death, will be abolished. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Don't let your life's vision get sucked down into navel-gazing through life. Don't get spiritually apathetic and drift off to sleepy, self-centered town. Awake, brothers and sisters, awake. Look up and look forward. Awake to a living God who's at work in our lives. Live in light of the certain reality of the resurrection of Jesus and all the certain realities that are yet to come because of it. Are you fearful of the dark? The darkness can never overcome the light. It didn't on Sunday. It doesn't now. Are you anxious about the future? Fear not. Our risen God is in us and with us and for us. In the fear, don't trust in yourself. Trust in the risen one. Are you grieving the loss of a brother or sister in Christ? Grieve well, but don't grieve without hope. Grieve knowing that even grief one day will be abolished and reunion in Christ awaits. Are you walking through trial and trouble? Take heart, walk in courage for Jesus has overcome the world. Are you wondering if God is able, something you're praying through right now, something You are prone to drift toward doubt or unbelief or disbelief. Are you wondering if God is able? He beat death, the greatest enemy of humanity. He's more than able. Are you experiencing suffering and affliction? Look up and look forward. For our momentary and light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So do not focus on what is seen but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And what is unseen will be seen again. For He was faithful on, Sunday, on Easter Sunday morning. He'll be faithful in His second coming. Are you frustrated at the evil in our day? One day it'll be no more. One day it'll be no more. Be found faithful as an ambassador, as a witness for Christ for such a time as this. For the sovereign one has providentially placed you into this place, this time, to declare the praises of the one who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who is still calling those in darkness into his marvelous light. He's still doing that work, and he's called you as a witness, as an ambassador for such a time as this, to witness to him, to testify To him. It's what Matt did today, but this is what we do in the workplace and in school as a way of life. Are you frustrated at the evil? Go be an ambassador. Go be a disciple maker. Don't get anxious. And don't get angry. Verses 29 through 34, Paul then talks about how the resurrection of Jesus is shaping his way of life and how it should shape the Corinthians' way of life as well as ours. Otherwise, what will they do who are being baptized for the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, then why are people baptized for them? Why are we in danger every hour? I I face death every day as surely as I may boast about you, brothers and sisters, in Christ Jesus our Lord. If I fought wild beasts in Ephesus as a mere man, what good did that do me? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Come to your senses and stop sinning, for some people are ignorant about God. I say this to your shame. There are over 40 interpretations to verse 29. Number one, scholars say, I'm just teasing, we're not doing that. <laughs> so, If you're newer, you thought, oh, heavens. In short, some people had picked up this practice of baptizing, baptizing themselves on behalf of believers who had died. It's, it's not a practice talked about elsewhere, anywhere else in the New Testament, nor anything that Paul is saying believers uh, should, should practice in, but of any local church that it's going to happen in, it's going to be the Corinthians. So we'll, we're going to move on. In verses 30 through the first half of 32, Paul is saying that the resurrection of Jesus led him to a life of both sacrifice and servanthood sacrifice and servanthood. In Paul's second letter to the Corinthians, he included much detail about his hardship and persecution that he experienced as a result of proclaiming a risen Jesus. Gordon Fee wrote to these words in, in, uh, in chapter 15. He said this, here's a succinct pastoral theology of the risks." And the dearest, deepest concerns of a pastor who's willing to sacrifice all for the gospel in light of that future gathering together of all at the resurrection. Paul's saying, why in the world would I go through all these trials willingly if the resurrection was not true? But since it is, which he's laid out, why in the world would I not be willing to undergo sacrifice that in the end is light, it's momentary, it's earthly in nature, Why in the world would I not be willing to be a wholehearted servant of Jesus Christ if even death could not contain him, promising that death will not contain a believer, a follower? The lives of all Christians are to be marked by sacrifice and servanthood. Why? Because Jesus went first. He sacrificed of himself, came to serve, not to be served, gave of himself completely. And yet in the resurrection proves that none of it was wasted. None of it was in vain. It was all part of the Father's plans. And so as we follow in his footsteps, we sacrifice and we serve in order to reflect and glorify the one who went first. Not in order to be loved, but because we are loved. Not in order to earn eternal life, but rather because eternal life is already ours. It's already ours. You're already a citizen of heaven. We don't walk into that citizenship. It's ours now. And his resurrection promises our resurrection. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. If you follow the logic, the hypothetical logic of verses 12 through 19, this is where you land. You eat, you drink, because tomorrow we die, none of this matters. Life becomes about survival. It becomes about indulgence, self-preservation and self-protection. You either drift toward living in fear, and you hunker down and you grow more and more anxious or more and more angry, or you start to live full throttle, chasing after pleasures of this world. Either way, your life becomes marked by a profound lack of hope, a profound lack of belief, a profound lack of trust in the risen King of Kings. Paul's quoting from Isaiah 22, and in that historical context, Assyrian invaders would soon be wiping out the Israelites, wiping them out because of their continued rebellion and dismissing of God's calls to return to Him. And so even though judgment was near and at their doorstep, the opportunity to repent was at hand. Instead of turning back toward the Lord, they decided to party like it's no tomorrow because they reject the Lord who is seeking to save them. Loved ones, don't let that describe you. Don't let your pride lead you away from the Lord who died and rose again in order to save you. Living in light of the resurrection not only shapes our view of life, causes us to live for eternity and not just the moment, it also shapes the community around us. Paul's warning the church, bad company corrupts good morals. When the circle of people around you Strictly lives for the earthly. Let's eat, let's drink, tomorrow we die. And in doing so, they are denying the resurrection with their words, with their way of life. If that's the predominant circle around you, Paul's warning, saying, it shapes you. It shapes you. It turns you away from the Lord. Don't be arrogant thinking it doesn't for you. I've seen this occur tragically far too often in believers' lives, especially those newer in the faith. After having laid out the certainty of the resurrection of Jesus, Paul says, come to your senses and stop sinning. Return to the Lord. Return to the Good Shepherd. Turn around from walking in worship of sin and self and turn toward the worship of our Savior and Lord Jesus. Wake up to the reality that Jesus rose from the dead. One day is returning. And it's only those whose faith and hope is in Him that can look forward to that day with joy with rest, with hope, with delight. See, you're, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. There is no in between. There is no neutral position. You like that one? Some of you like that one. Okay. I'm just trying to make sure you don't drift off on me. But there is no neutral position. We love a neutral. We love a moderate. You're either in Christ or you're in Adam. There's no neutral This is one truth we declare when we get baptized. We are publicly testifying. We are in Christ, buried in His likeness, raised to new life in Him, born again in Him, not by our will, but by the will of the Father. In the coming Sundays, I anticipate there's going to be more and more baptisms. That the Lord is at work here. So next Sunday, I'm going to fill the tank. And some of you are going to walk by faith and obedience. The following Sunday, we're going to fill the tank and some of you are going to walk by faith and obedience. Not because my sabbatical is coming up, but because the Spirit is at work. The Spirit is at work. I, I joyfully watched that one from the front row. It's beautiful. Walk by faith and obedience. Let God get the glory through your testimony. Some of you confess Christ as Savior and Lord. Go public. Testify to the goodness of God's grace in your life through the years. Verse 20 again, but as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead, so our faith is meaningful. It's not in vain. We are speakers of truth. We can grieve with eternal hope, knowing our God did not forsake those who we miss, that we've been freed from our sin, that we're no longer covered in our sin, but we are covered in his robes of righteousness by grace alone. But as it is, Christ has been raised from the dead. So we can sacrifice for and we can serve our Lord with him, alongside him, empowered by him, knowing none of it is in vain. We can live with deep hope, expectant joy, supernatural belief, profound endurance, bold and loving courage in this life and in death. Because he went first so that all his followers might follow and live in that same way. Christ has been raised from the dead. Lord Jesus, you beat death, sin, and the devil. You are an overcoming God who is trustworthy in every aspect of this life and in the life to come. All things are subject to you. We praise you. We devote ourselves to you. We confess our allegiance to you and your kingdom and your plans and purposes. Help us this week to live in light of your resurrection, in light of your future return and our future resurrection. Give us eyes fixed on eternity as we live as citizens of heaven here in this place. May we be people of profound hope and expectant joy and steady faith. May we have a courageous and loving and Christ-like witness to the world. Save people today, Lord. Bring more people into your kingdom. Move people away from a trust in self and into a wholehearted trust in you. Give us in this gathering, those watching, those listening, give us a sweet and humble spirit of repentance across this place. May we wake up to who you are, who you've always been and always will be. May we walk by faith and obedience for your glory. You have won. You will win and we worship you. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. First Peter. Chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Happy Easter. He is risen, and He is risen tomorrow as well as we walk by faith.